And good evening. It's Wednesday night, time for our Bible study here at the Hamilton Street Church of Christ. I'm standing here again looking at what I wish were pews filled with all of our church family. And until that happens, just know that we're praying for each and every one of you. We'll be calling probably tomorrow or the next day to check on you. Please know that you're in our prayers, that we care for you and your loved ones. And if there's anything you ever need, you just call us and let us know. Let's begin tonight in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21. It says, Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? It is strange that religion is so often seen as something for the weak and the timid. Nothing could be further from the truth. The business of rightly relating ourselves to God's glory is not for the faint-hearted, and the enjoyment of fellowship with Him is not something that results from a whim or a mood. Closeness to God comes from commitment, and we will not draw near to Him unless that nearness is a strong and serious goal. Many of us would say that we love God. If we actually do, that's a good thing. But the truth about whether or not we love him is revealed by the depth of our determination to draw close to him. So, how easily are we distracted from thinking about him? How much time do we spend actually working on our relationship with him? What price would we pay to keep from losing him? Not all who start out to seek God will enjoy him in eternity. Alluding to Israel's failure of faith in the wilderness, the Hebrew writer said, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Chapter, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9. And goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Are we willing then to make closeness to God the single requirement of our daily work? Let me ask that again. Are we willing then to make closeness to God the single requirement of our daily work? Are we willing to stake everything on this one possibility that the God who made us can be approached in love? Are we willing to dedicate every day of our mortal pilgrimage to the learning of this love? If we are, then great goodness awaits us. Drawing near to God would be impossible if God had not opened the door in Jesus Christ. But even so, it takes a courageous commitment to draw near. As the Lord says in Jeremiah 30, Who is this, God once asked, who pledged his heart to approach me? Unrivaled in the glory of his love, this same God is our king. And in the end, none will come near him who have not devoted themselves to doing so. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, What God in his sovereignty may yet do on a world scale, I do not claim to know. But what he will do for the plain man or woman who seeks his face, I believe I do know and can tell others. Let a man turn to God in earnest. Let him begin to exercise himself unto godliness. Let him seek to develop his powers of spiritual receptivity by trust and obedience and humility, and the results will exceed anything he may have hoped for in his leaner and weaker days. Psalm 17 and verse 5 says, Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. If we seek God sincerely, we will be willing to get to heaven by any path that He deems best for us. But this willingness is not always easy. 
When the way home begins to look uncomfortably different from the path that we've pictured in our minds, the result may be, well, resentment, if not outright rebellion. At times like these, we must learn to love God for his own sake and not insist on any particular set of conditions as we journey toward him. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119 verse 133, Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Such a prayer must be our own. And in our higher moments, we know that this is indeed what we desire. We want God to uphold our steps in his paths. We want his wisdom to supersede our own plans and preferences so that the greatest possible good is accomplished, not only for ourselves, but for the world in which we live. Certainly, we must avoid any sort of demanding attitude toward God. If we have envisioned ourselves living and serving God within a particular set of circumstances, That may be well and good, but if life unfolds according to a different pattern, we must still maintain our reverence before we start acting as if our rights have been infringed. We need to do a reality check. Long-term service to God requires flexibility, and most of us need to be more flexible in defining what our possibilities are. The good that God put us here to accomplish can be accomplished in more ways than we might think. We need to accept that there are numerous scenarios through which God could be glorified in our lives. And we must not be so wedded to one or two of these that we can't see the value in others. Is it not obvious from the world of nature that God delights in variety? Let us not be so short-sighted or attached to the way we always thought it would be that we can't accept something else for the sake of his glory. An old preacher by the name of F. Brooke wrote, My goal is God himself. Not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself, my God, to his, to lead me there, not mine, but his, at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. First John chapter 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. To be in Christ is to be moving toward an experience that must surely qualify as the ultimate eye-opener. If we depart from this life in fellowship with him, we will not have found ourselves on the other side for one instant before we realize two breathtaking things. Number one, it is very different than we thought it would be. And number two, it is much better than we thought it would be. In our present condition, we are not able to understand much more than the edges of God's reality. The limitations of our creaturely minds compounded by the problems resulting from our sin mean that our vessels, these earthly vessels, are too small to hold more than a little understanding of God and his heavenly abode. God has revealed himself to us wonderfully, of course, and what he has revealed is objectively true. Our limitation is not in the truth or accuracy of what we can know, but rather in the extent of that knowledge. And concerning heaven, God has said only that it will be like some of the more valuable things that we're acquainted with in this world. As we reach forward to eternity, we should hold in our minds the most vivid concepts of God and heaven that the scriptures will allow us to entertain. But as we hold these concepts in our minds, we need to hold them gently or even tentatively. The truth is... Great surprises are in store for God's faithful people, and even the, the, the most perceptive and wise should expect to have their imaginings corrected and improved by a greater reality when that time comes. 
The God who created us for his glory is a God of such great goodness that no earthly visualization can take it in. But eventually, if we've yielded to his process of redemption, our eyes will be open to the full extent of the majesty that we've wondered about for so long. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So while we are eager in our anticipation of heaven, let us also be humble, reverent, and open. Much about God remains to be seen. Little more than this do we really know. Heaven will be better than even our best guesses right now. Robert Browning poemed, Earth breaks up, time drops away. In flows heaven with its new day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is, in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Sometimes we resist changes that would be beneficial, because changes often require an admission of past failure. They make us uncomfortable. Called upon, for example, to change a major conviction or principle, an older person may back away, to change, I'd have to admit that all these years I've been wrong, and that would mean that most of my life has been wasted. Sometimes we're embarrassed that it took us so long to see what we should do. If this was the right course of action, I would have seen it sooner. Sounds like a reasonable objection, but it may be nothing more than the product of our stubborn pride. At other times, we're embarrassed that it took us so long to do what we should. Often there is no way to improve our conduct without drawing attention to the fact that our conduct needed to be improved. But again, we would do well to beware of pride. If we let pride keep us from moving forward, then we're being held back by one of the most unhealthy influences in the world. In most cases, however, our problem is simply that we find it hard to break away from the pull of the past. If there is some bad decision that we've been making for a long time, that decision is now easy to make, despite its harmful consequences. Making any other choice would require so much commitment and energy that it seems more pleasant just to stay as we are. The drowsy person you see finds it difficult to do anything else but drift off to sleep. Yet whatever our reasons for resisting change, we should rise above them. The Thessalonians would have had as many reasons as anyone for remaining consistent with their past. They, however, were willing to change for the better, and Paul praised them for their courage. When you received the word of God, he wrote them, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. When we, like these people, welcome into our lives the truth and its consequences, we may be sure that the years that have led us to that point have not been wasted. If God has been patient with us, and surely he has, Let's make up our minds that his patience will not have been in vain. John Henry Newman said, To live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. John 16 and verse 22, Jesus says, I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take away from you. Jesus spoke of a joy so strong that the world would not be able to tear it from his disciples' hearts. Not even the worst onslaughts of persecution could breach this bright fortress within the souls of the faithful. To know this friend, indeed to even to seek him, is to know a joy that makes even the weak strong. And yet the joy that is available to us is not something we can take for granted. 
Although it is strong, it is not impossible to lose. Abraham Lincoln's famous saying that most folks are as bad as happy as they make up their minds to be is true from a spiritual as well as a worldly standpoint. Discouragement is not something that happens to us. It's something we allow to happen to us. Whatever things may discourage us and deprive us of joy, we need to wonder where those things are coming from. We have a spiritual adversary, you see, Satan, who seeks our downfall. And to that end, he labors with malice and energy. His purpose is to undermine our faith with doubt, to replace our courage with confusion, and drag us downward into despair. He is, to say the least, up to no good. We are taught to take a stubborn stand against the attacks of our enemy. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We may be vulnerable, but we're not helpless. We're free to choose the joy of truth over the sadness of Satan's deceptions. The joy of seeking God is of such value that we ought to guard it with our lives. This is something we should simply refuse to give up. Real joy is worth more than anything we might exchange it for. It is a vital part of our defense against evil. And we ought to hold it in our hearts with a tenacious grip. From day to day, there is nothing the devil would despise any more than to see us drink deep drafts of pure, joyous laughter. Those who are not only joyful but determined in their joy are almost impossible for him to defeat. Try as he may, there is little he can do with those who've made up their minds to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Philippians chapter 4. A.J. Russell put it this way, Refuse to be downcast. Refuse to be checked in your upward climb. Love and laugh. Laugh with me today. Laugh in the face of this virus. Laugh in the face of these troublesome times that we're in economically. Take a moment and just laugh because God is still in control. The devil will not win. And you and I both know that we can have joy in the moment. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's our prayer for you this week. That all of these things come to you and they may bless your lives. And we pray that you would accept this uh, as as a word of encouragement and we hope to be together soon god love you and we will we will we'll do that we'll worship soon